This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. The X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All-Hit Radio! Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, one and all, to the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, TV. And if you'd like to check out the programming available for you, 724-365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Exxon Nation, my guest this hour is David Brody. And uh, David is a leading researcher and lecturer in the field of history, of America before Columbus. A former director of the New England Antiquities Research Association, he has appeared frequently as a guest on documentaries airing on History Channel, Travel Channel, PBS, and Discovery Channel. He is the author of six historical fiction novels, all of which have been Amazon uh, Kindle top 10 bestsellers. A graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School, he resides in Westford, Massachusetts with his wife and two daughters. His website, www.davidbrodybooks.com. And David Brody, welcome to the Exxon. Thank you. We can add Exxon to that list of History Channel, Discovery, and other uh, quality sites. Sir, we would be honored. (laughs) David, um, where did the interest of pre-Columbus history uh, come from? Sure. So uh, my town, Westford, Massachusetts, we have a legend, the Prince Henry Sinclair, uh, the Westford Knight legend, that in mm-hmm. 1398, a Scottish explorer by the name of Sinclair, following in his Viking ancestor footsteps, island hopped his way across the North Atlantic, ended up in Nova Scotia, and eventually up the Merrimack River to Westford, Mass., which is about 25 miles inland. And uh, while climbing a hill, one of his lieutenants died, and they carved an effigy in the rock ledge. And that effigy of a, of a fallen knight is still visible here today in Westford, and we call it the Westford Knight Legend. And that got me started on this whole idea that prior to Columbus, there were lots of people coming back and forth across the Atlantic, not just the Vikings, but going way back into time. Wow. And uh, eventually going way back, and we'll talk later on, probably about Atlantis. But uh, the whole idea began that, you know, we know the Vikings were here, yeah. and then we know 500 years Columbus came, but how come no one came back and forth between 
And I think the answer is they probably did, and they kept it secret because they had a really good a good gig going, and it was a good fishing hole or a good trading situation, and they just kept it quiet. Um, so that's how it all started. Well, I can't understand after all these years with all the the excellent uh, the excellent history that you and other researchers have been able to bring to the public. Why so many schools still teach that Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas? You know, it's funny because I was in in Scotland recently. My daughter was in college, uh, taking a semester at the University of Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and 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 there they talk very matter of factly at, at Roslyn Chapel, Chapel, for example of Prince Henry Sinclair coming to the Americas in 1398. Yeah. And up in Nova Scotia, they talk very matter-of-factly about Prince Henry Sinclair arriving in 1398. For some reason here in the United States, we have a, you know, we have a little block on it. It's like, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and we learned that in second grade, and it's the equivalent of trying to tell a kid there's no such thing as Easter Bunny, I guess. But we, we have trouble getting past that. But if, if we know for a fact that academia is not telling us or teaching the truth about history to our children when it comes to Christopher Columbus, David. What else are they not teaching our children the truth about? <laughs> um, that, that's a good question. I, and I will, to be honest, the way I first heard about this, this Columbus, this uh, Prince Henry St. Carol legend, mm-hmm. is my daughter in fourth grade in the local school wow. came home from school one day and they had a storyteller coming in telling the story of Prince Henry Sinclair. Mm-hmm. So to say that it's not being taught at all is probably unfair. It is being taught, not as widespread as we'd like it to be, and your question is a valid one. What else are we not learning? But I do think slowly the ocean liner is turning. I've been doing this for about 10 years, and I know even in that decade, there's a lot more people talking about this, a lot more people paying attention to it, a lot more open-mindedness to it, and so I'm hoping that the next generation will not have the same conversation you and I are having now. Instead, the conversation will be, who was here, and when did they get here, and who else was here, and who else was here on top of that? You know, some really fun stuff, and really going out and, and researching it, as opposed to sticking our head in the sand and wondering why we can't see anything. We can only hope. Stand by, please, David. You and I have to take our first break. Exonation David Brody is our special guest. David's uh, website is www.davidbrodybooks.com. And David and I will be back on the other side of this short break as we continue talking about the Americas before Columbus here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell? 
The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Exonation, David Brody is our guest to this hour, www.davidbrodybooks.com. All right, so where should we start this? How far back should we go from the time way prior to our good friend Chris Columbus? (laughs) So as I mentioned last segment, I started looking at the late 1300s, Prince Henry Sinclair, Mm -hmm. and, and in association, we think, with the disbanded Knights Templars. I think probably what happened was... His family has a long-time association with the Templars. Um, It's likely the Templar treasure ended up in Scotland after leaving France in 1307, and one of the theories is that it ended up with the Sinclair family, and perhaps they were coming to the Americas to to hide it or to take safe haven. Um, But that's a fascinating story. And and then I started looking uh, at some earlier sites here in New England uh, some stone chambers that seem to validate the legend of Brendan the Navigator, the Irish explorer from the 6th century. Now, some of these round stone corbel chambers that seem to be Celtic or Druidic, and mm-hmm. uh, again, in many cases, validated that whole legend that Brendan and, and a, a dozen or so monks came across the Atlantic. Uh, and then if we go back even further, there's a site up in New Hampshire called America Stonehenge, which points strongly towards the idea that Phoenician explorers right. were here perhaps 3,500 years ago, 1,500 B.C., and perhaps they were here mining copper mm-hmm. to fuel the Bronze Age. Uh, and so we just keep going further and further back, and then eventually I go all the way back to Atlantis. And the great thing about Atlantis being 12,000 years ago is nobody can tell me I'm wrong about that. There's just not enough evidence to go either way on it. But uh, I just kept going further and further back. And the idea, I think, is that the Atlantic Ocean is not a barrier but a highway. And it's the human condition to want to explore, to go in search, to go look for opportunity, to satisfy our curiosity. And once you get past that whole idea that the Atlantic Ocean, that people actually thought you were going to fall off the edge of the world, they didn't believe that. That's something the church tried to teach, but people didn't believe that. And the ships back then, the ships the Phoenicians sailed three or 4,000 years ago were bigger than what Columbus had. So, of course, they could have made it across, even if they just got lost once or twice. You know? So if you just look at the, at the factual evidence and, and use your common sense. You know, I had a law professor teach me that the first thing you need as a lawyer is good common sense. If you just use your common sense, this sort of screams at you that yeah. it, it would be surprising if people had not come back and forth, much more surprising than they thought that they did. So where did the crossover come between lawyer and historian? Um, I, th- I think the crossover point for this kind of, for history, for researching history, is, is taking a look at evidence, identifying mm-hmm. evidence, weighing that evidence, determining which evidence is credible, 
and then sort of putting it together almost like a jigsaw puzzle. Okay, we have disparate pieces of evidence, we have disparate pieces of information. Do they tell a story that holds together? Is this something you can go in front of a jury with and with a straight face and say, this is what we think happened? We can't be 100% certain, but we think this is plausible. We think the pieces fit together. We think this is what happened. And that's what I do in my books. You know, I write historical fiction. It's not, it's not nonfiction, but mm-hmm. the jury in that case really is my readers. And let's face it, if we're going to ask somebody to spend 20 hours of their time uh, in a novel or any kind of book, there has to be credibility to it. No one's going to waste their time if it's a stupid idea, if it's an incredible or an uncredible premise to the story. Okay, and so this all goes back to what can, what can you sell with a straight face to your jury? And that's really the intersection point between the writing and the research I do and my legal training. Tell me about Atlantis. So the Atlantis thing, to be honest, when I sat down to do the research, again, it's all back about evidence. If I'm mm-hmm. going to be, you know, be my, put my lawyer hat back on, I did not think there would be enough evidence to write a story about Atlantis, a book about Atlantis. I thought that after 12,000 years, which is what, what basically what Plato tells us is the time frame for this, that the, the trail would be cold. There'd be nothing left. Everything's buried at the bottom of the ocean. You know, what possible evidence could we have today that survived? And it turned out, and obviously since I'm doing this radio show and I wrote the book, it turned out there was a compelling amount of evidence. Now, the difference was you couldn't just look at historical evidence. You couldn't just look at anthropological evidence. You couldn't just look at geological evidence. You couldn't just look at fine arts. You had to look sort of little pieces of evidence from each different discipline. It had to be an interdisciplinary approach. But if you do take, for example, cartographic evidence and you mesh that in with the biology, and you mesh that in with the historical record, and you mesh that in with, again, some of the fine arts things that we found, you can put together a pretty compelling case that there's a lot of advanced civilization, I call it the echoes of Atlantis, and they're my novels, the echoes of Atlantis. There's evidence right around 11,500 years ago, advanced peace, advanced technology that survives even to today. So where did that come from? And the most obvious uh, candidate in my mind is some kind of advanced civilization, as Plato said, that was destroyed approximately 11,600 years ago in some kind of cataclysmic event. But again, there's pieces of, of evidence that survive mm-hmm. even today that indicate something was going on just after that time period. What pieces of technological evidence are you talking about? Not technological. We haven't found technological, but just an example... Um, geological evidence. Let's, let's take a look at that, because, you know, Plato tells us that the, 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 the lost continent of Atlantis was outside of the Pillars of Hercules, the Space mm-hmm. of Gibraltar, on their way to the opposite continent, which surrounds the true ocean. In other words, on their way to America across the Atlantic Ocean. We look in the 1930s at some U.S. geological studies that were done by a gentleman by the name of Charles Pigott, and what he found was that approximately 12,000 years ago, along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, heavy deposits of volcanic ash were found. Well, how could that be if the, vol- if the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and what we're talking about here is essentially a snake-like ridge of, uh, of land that rises up, not above sea level, mm-hmm. other than in a few places like the Azor Islands and Iceland, but underneath the Atlantic. But 12,000 years ago, there's volcanic ash, which tells us that at 12,000 years ago, again, that's what Plato tells us, this land was above sea level. Also along that ridge, he found in his, in his geological testings, he found uh, 
beach sand, and he also found freshwater fossils. All of those indicate that in that time period that Plato was talking about, there was a landmass along that ridge above sea level. So that's just one piece of hard evidence that we need to explain that away. And if you start looking more carefully at what Plato said and the dates he gives, talks about a cataclysmic event, that matches the geological uh, timeline, something called the Younger Dryas period. Mm -hmm. The stories all sort of fit together, some kind of cataclysmic event in which volcanic eruptions, uh, earthquakes, tidal waves all occurred. And again, the geological evidence matches that. Um, there's other historical sources besides Plato. So if this really did happen, there should be a memory of it amongst other cultures, not just Plato and the Greeks, and in that, in fact, we do have that. We have memories of Sanskrit writings. We have memories from ancient Phoenicia. We have uh, legends from India. All of these talk about the same kind of thing, an advanced civilization. The words are slightly different, but they all have the same ATL Atlantis root to them. And again, so different cultures have this memory of an ancient civilization out in the middle of the Atlantic that was uh, warlike and then eventually was destroyed in some kind of cataclysmic event. We have cartographic evidence. We have maps. Um, I love the fact that even into the early 1500s, um, our most famous map makers, um, Mercator, for example, his map in 1606, actually, into the, 16, into the 17th century, um, there's a landmass south of Greenland and south of Iceland called Frisland. And we see that on almost every medieval map. It's about the size of the British Islands, just south of Iceland. Well, there is no such thing as Frisland, of course. And by 1606, Mercator and other mapmakers should have known that. But I think what happened, what mapmakers do, is they borrow earlier maps and they're copycats. I think in ancient times, probably going back before the Phoenicians, who probably buried it from an ancient civilization. In ancient times, there was a landmass right there south of Iceland, and it made it onto ancient maps, and those maps borrowed it and kept it. And that's why even as late as 1606, we still see this landmass, Frisland, south of Iceland, right where the, right the Mid-Atlantic Ridge runs, and right where we'd expect to find a, uh, a lost continent. And so, again, if you look carefully at some of these ancient maps, or not even ancient maps, the medieval maps, there's echoes of ancient evidence that continue today. So that's just three examples, but there's probably 10 or 12 other ones I could give as well. There have been a number of expeditions around uh, throughout the Atlantic, uh, even off the, sh off the shores of uh, Gibraltar and off Spain, Portugal, throughout the Mediterranean, looking for Atlantis. And yet, even with today's high technology, the expertise of divers, ROVs, mini-subs, nothing. Yeah, and that, that's not surprising to me, at least. Um, I'll quote Plato. There occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, the island of Atlantis disappeared into the depths of the sea. So what you're talking about is a cataclysmic event, and the idea that you know, it's not just sitting at the bottom of the ocean. Whatever it is, it, it's, it's crumbled. It's had 12,000 years of sediment to get on top of it. And you're talking really a needle in the haystack somewhere along the mm -hmm. Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's, it's a huge area. So uh, you mentioned some areas inside the Mediterranean. I, you know, I think Plato's plain words tell us it's outside the Straits of Gibraltar. And so I think a lot of people are looking, you know, I've heard the island of Santorini. I've heard other people, you know, other theories. I don't think mm -hmm. that's right. The timeline doesn't work for those areas. Um, I do think that as technology continues to advance, that someday 
the technology might catch up and we will be able to do things like ground penetrating ground penetrating radar type things and mm-hmm. sonar and, and be able to read uh, what's underneath the sediment and what's underneath the rubble at the bottom of the ocean that maybe someday we will be able to get to that point. But at this point, it's almost impossible to know where to begin to look other than somewhere along that mid-Atlantic ridge. But I, if the, the catastrophic event that Plato was talking about was so significant, wouldn't there be other areas that were also affected by this cataclysmic event that could show a trail to the fabled land of Atlantis? Well, in fact, we, we, do, we do have something in the, in, in the historical record right around. So again, Plato talks about 11,600 years before present, mm-hmm. and that coincides exactly with something called the, younger dry, the end of the Younger Dryas period, where the Younger Dryas, we had the Ice Age ended, it got warm again, and then it got cold again, and then there's a huge spike right at 116 where we, we gained another 10 degrees to end the Ice Age once and for all. And many geologists and scientists believe that that was caused by the same cataclysmic event that destroyed Atlantis. In other words, either a meteorite or an asteroid hit, the resulting impact released tons of energy through, the, through earthquakes and, and, and tidal waves and volcanoes, and that release of energy melted the caps, also created a temperature rise, and that's what wiped out Atlantis. So we do have this in the historical record. The date Plato gave, and this is what first drew me to this. Here's Plato, and he's writing about mm, 350 B.C., mm-hmm. but he's talking about a date uh, about 9,000 years earlier than he lived, and he nailed it. He got it exactly right 11,600 years ago. So he must have had good information. Because, again, to have that exact date, to, have, to be able to nail it so perfectly to the end of the Younger Dryas cooling period, told me at least that that couldn't be a coincidence, that he had to have accurate information. And we do, the ancient cultures, they do have these memories of these, of these flood narratives, different than the one we're talking about in the Bible, mm-hmm. but the ancient cultures going way back, they all in their memory do talk about this event, whether it's uh, ancient Sanskrit writings or... Uh, again, pre pre pharaohic Egyptian legends. There are echoes of these legends across the world, going back to that eleven thousand five hundred time period. Why was Plato the only person to write about Atlantis? Uh, well, again, he was the only Westerner. So again, we do have other we have other legends. In- this is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Exonation, Dave Brody is our guest this hour, www.davebrodybooks.com. This is one of the things that I I don't understand about the entire Atlantis 
story is that everybody talks about the the legend of Atlantis based on Plato. And yet there were other Western uh, philosophers, other Western books that were, that, you know, or records that were kept. And yet, why only Plato? That makes no sense to me. Um, I, I, the only way I can answer that is to say it wasn't just Plato. Again, Plato was the only Westerner, but mm-hmm. there's a Sumerian legend going back about 6,000 years ago, and I'll quote, before the stars were born, before people built great cities, mm-hmm. the great mountain Atlan, A-T-L, shook yeah. and bled fiery blood, the land all around burned, many animals and people died. A similar legend from the in ancient Sanskrit writings of India, a large island called Atala, off the western shore of Africa, with many cities and an advanced civilization burned and sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. Uh, the Phoenicians have a legend about the Aletians, again, the same A-L-T-A-T-L route. So um, as far as why other Western uh, historians didn't mm-hmm. know about it, I, I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that, but there are other sources besides Plato in the historical record that talk about this ancient civilization in the middle of the Atlantic. So, so where did this advanced civilization come from then? And why were they the only advanced civilization compared to everybody else? Right, so that, that's an interesting question. And, and, and the way I first started looking at this is I, um, I started thinking about the fact that even today, at a time when we're sending men to the moon mm-hmm. and splitting the atom and artificial hearts, we still have pockets of civilizations in the Amazon rainforest and in Southeast Asia where people are living no differently than they did, say, 50,000 years ago. Hunter-gatherer countries, uh, uh, societies, Stone Age peoples, uh, there's a a tribe off the coast of India that as of about a decade ago still had not figured out the Anja tribe, still had not figured out the causal relationship between sexual intercourse and procreation. They just hadn't figured out that, oh yeah, nine months later this is what happens, a baby comes out. And so at a time when society is so advanced in some parts of the world, it can be so quote-unquote backwards in others, is the opposite possible, that 12, 15, 20,000 years ago, some society gained an economic advantage and through trade was able to build themselves leisure time. And through that leisure time, that's the spur and that's, what, that's where, that's where uh, invention and art and science begins, when people have free time to mm-hmm. put their minds to these kinds of questions. And if you think about where we think Atlantis may have been, in, in the central Atlantic, south of India, of uh, Iceland, pardon me, south of Iceland, the Gulf Stream comes right up there and makes that area very temperate. And so at a period where this is the Ice Age, don't forget, twelve to 15,000 years ago, where the rest of the world is really in a deep freeze and really struggling to survive, if Atlantis would have had an economic advantage because of their climate and been able to take advantage of that through trade, they would have been able to have the leisure time needed to grow and advance their civilization at a rate faster than anybody else. So again, this is a question, we're just speculating here, of course, but that's how I see the possibility. And again, when I compare that to what happens still today in parts of the world where we do have these Stone Age peoples, I think the opposite could have been the case 15, 20,000 years ago. Do you believe that there are on this planet right now descendants from those who fled Atlantis and were able to survive this cataclysmic event? I do. I, I think that um, there's a couple different candidates, uh, groups that are candidates for that. I think the Basques, 
of in the Pyrenees Mountains region of northern France, uh, northern Spain and southern France, mm-hmm. are a good candidate. The Berbers of northern Africa, the perhaps the Druze of Lebanon, perhaps the Orkneyans on the Orkney Islands north of uh, Scotland. They all seem to show some interesting DNA and blood type uh, unique traits. And they also all seem to be along that, other than the, the Druze in Lebanon, they all seem to be along that sort of Atlantic rim, where if there was a catastrophe in the middle of the Atlantic and a few people did flee, either because they happened to be in boats already, they were out on trading missions, they happened just to get lucky, a few people did flee and, and go towards either east or west, towards the shorelines, that they would have survived. A few of them would have survived. I don't think they were, would have been able to continue their advanced civilization. They just didn't have the infrastructure. But that's how we find this little burst of technological advance right around 11,000 years ago. I think it's because the survivors tried to hold on. We see some interesting weaponry in the maritime archaic peoples of, of uh, the maritime Canada and New England. And we see uh, burial practices that are shared across both sides of the Atlantic and, mm-hmm. and some fine arts in the Pyrenees Mountains area. But I think that's what was happening then, and I think there are survivors, um, probably a number of them at this point, but that's where I think they're mostly concentrated, the areas I mentioned. And most, most interestingly to me are the Basques in the Pyrenees Mountains. So what would be the significance of the finding of Atlantis today? How would that uh, change our world? Other than just I think we all want to know the truth of our history, what really happened. I don't think there's any magic to it. I don't think there's anything quote-unquote, special or, or superior about Atlantis right. or its survivors. They just happen to, you know, in the course of a million years of human history or whatever the number is, I might have that number wrong, if they were 10,000 years ahead of the rest of us, that's, that's really a, a, a blink of an eye along the, along the time frame mm-hmm. of human history. So the fact that they were slightly ahead, um, it's not all that surprising to me. And it's not all that interesting from from perspective other than you know, it's our history. You know, we want to know what it is. But people sometimes, uh, I have this discussion a lot with, with, with other researchers and, and with other amateur historians, the whole idea of, uh, you know, they look at sites like the, the, the Sphinx or mm-hmm. the pyramids or, or Gobekli Tepe, and they say, there must have been some kind of advanced culture that taught humans beings, human beings to do that, and maybe it was aliens. And I say, we don't need advanced aliens exactly. to explain a lot of this stuff. I think we have advanced humans that can explain how all these things were done. It's called Atlantis. I don't think we need to have visitors coming in from outer space. I think we have the answers right here in, on Earth. And, 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 you know, let's not underestimate humankind. It's, again, it's only 10,000 years. It's not a huge amount of time evolutionarily uh, in the human timeline. But you and I were talking a few moments ago about, you know, history and, and how history doesn't teach the truth. So even if Atlantis was found, do you really think that it would get the historical recognition that some people believe it deserves? I, actually, I do. I, this is one of those situations I don't think that... I don't think that it offends any... Well, actually, I can tell you who it would offend. I mean, obviously, it changes the timeline of the Bible because exactly. the Old Testament says... You know, life be, uh, began Adam and Eve 6,000 years ago, and Atlantis is twice as old as that, mm-hmm. then that's out the window. But we've already decided that. Gobekli Tepe is 11,000 uh, years and change, the site in, in Turkey. So that's obviously, you know, 5,000 years older than 
the Old Testament. So yeah. that that the horse is already out of that barn. So I I do think that if someone were to find evidence of Atlantis, that the world would be very open to that. It's it's not one of those truths that are necessarily going to change the political paradigm mm-hmm. or the economic paradigm as we know it. It's so I'm, I'm you know I'm optimistic that if this were to come out, that people would just be like, wow. That's that's really cool. <laughs> that's how I would feel about it, and I know people I know would think it's just really cool that this legend that we've all grown up with, you know, Disney movies and everything else, uh, there really is a, a, a germ of truth to it, or more than a germ of truth to it. There's a lot of truth to it. The St. Clairs that you were talking about, were these the same St. Clairs that are associated with the Holy Grail? Yes, so that family. Um, so, the, the, again, the, when I first got into this, the legend of Prince Henry St. Clair and I hadn't made the connection back to all the Da Vinci Code stuff, mm. um, the Jesus bloodline stuff. But yes, it's actually the same family. Uh, Prince Henry Sinclair, the gentleman that we think was here in 1398-1399, his grandson built Roslyn Chapel. So it's the Sinclairs of the Da Vinci Code. It's the Sinclairs of the bloodline of Roslyn Chapel. The family, uh, they are uh, hereditary uh, grandmasters of Scottish Rite Freemasonry for almost 300 years. So very involved with Freemasonry, and going backwards, uh, one of the nine founding members of the Knights Templar was married to a Sinclair woman. So, so there's an association not only with all that Holy Grail stuff, but with the Knights Templars and the Freemasons, and essentially round up all the usual suspects, and you've got the Sinclairs right in the middle of everything, it seems mm. like. And so, yeah, we have this exploration of America tied back to that, as you put it, the Holy Grail stuff, the bloodline stuff. So it's pretty fertile ground for researchers, fertile ground for, for novels, obviously, for fiction. Sure. But also, it's the kind of thing that sort of holds together. Like, okay, why would they have, you know, that's the kind of family that would have crossed the Atlantic, right? They had a reason to get away. They had a secret to hide, treasures to hide. And so, again, the story holds together nicely. Do you think there's any treasure buried in Oak Island? <laughs> uh, I do. Let me, let me change your verb tense. Do I think there was a, ever a treasure uh, at one point buried there? Yes, I do think there was at one point. I, I no longer think it's there. I just think that, um, uh, you know, the, the Lagina brothers have done so much work up there, and so many other people have, have done so much that at some point somebody would have found something more than they have. So I, I, I have always loved that legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my father and I share a lot of time exploring those legends together, so I have memories from, even from my childhood thinking about those things. But I do think at some point somebody grabbed it and took it and either moved it or it's gone. Um, on the other hand, I can't get enough of that show. I, I love watching that. I love the, the, the possibility of treasure. It's very similar in that sense to the possibility of Atlantis. It's always the idea that we don't know our history and want to learn the truth of our history, whether it's a treasure or a lost ancient civilization or whatever it is. Um, you know, we just want to know. We, we're, we're a curious uh, we're a curious race. <laughs> we want to know the truth. Do you think the youth of today are really interested in the history that we have, or are they more interested in going forward? Uh, very much interested in the history. I, I do a lot of lectures at schools mm-hmm. uh, in Massachusetts. The kids cannot get enough of the stuff. They think it's. They just think it's it's fascinating. They uh, are very open to the idea, as children tend to be. But again, they they ask the same question you asked earlier, Rob, which is. Why is it that the mainstream historians and the mainstream educators 
will not sort of allow this to be, I'm not going to say taught, because we can't teach it as if, it's, as if it's fact yet, we don't sure, but explored. Why can't we, in good faith and with open eyes, go off and explore this together? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. We don't, neither side has a monopoly mm-hmm. on, on the answer to that, but why don't we in good faith go look? And I, I think that's what the youth would like. I think that, you know, people say to me, oh, the youth today, they're all they're interested in their video games. No, no, that's not what I find at all. I think they're incredibly um, uh, focused and interested and engaged. And uh, the youth that I know, uh, you know, if, if that's the next generation that's going to lead our society, good, we're in good hands. Mm. You know, it's, it's amazing if the space race or the space industry would have taken the same attitude that we're taking with history, we wouldn't uh, have got to the moon. True. I mean, it, 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 it takes bold thinking. It does. You know, it, and, and, and more than that, it just takes... I love the academic types who sit in their offices. You know, I spend a lot of time on the weekends and on vacations. I'm out in the woods looking... At rock carvings, at stone structures. I'm at, to me, it's fascinating. All right, right? David, David stand by, guys, David. David, no. we've got to take our final break. Exonation. Nation, David sure. Brody is our guest. DavidBrodyBooks.com, and I'll be back as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away now. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back, one and all. David Brody is our guest, www.davidbrodybooks.com. Um, David, um, the, you use the word crones in your subtitle. Can you explain why? <laughs> um, that was actually going to be the title until a lot of people, a lot of, uh, my, my sort of friendly readers, uh, mm-hmm. rebelled against that. But crones, it has sort of a negative connotation, you know, uh, uh, reminds people of witches almost. But the word crone is the same root as the word crown. And what it really refers to is a female 
leader of some kind. Okay, and in my in my book, one of the characters is uh, is is a, is, is a crone-like figure, and she wears that badge bravely and proudly. Mm-hmm. But the reason I, I sort of tied into that is there's a fascinating. I mentioned earlier that there's lots of little pieces of evidence yeah. to sort of prove this Atlantis thing. There's a fascinating piece of cave art in eastern Mexico that's pre-contact. It's it's it's, it's uh, you know, before the time of European contact, and the, it's a cave art of a of a of a, a goddess by the name of Tzfazel Total, and she is the goddess of unclean things, woman menstruation and whatnot, and she's depicted as she's sitting naked on a broomstick with a black pointed hat, and it struck me this is the identical portrayal of a witch as we have in Europe. Again, this is pre-contact, mm-hmm. and she's a witch-like figure riding a broomstick with, wearing a black pointed hat. So how did this idea of, of a witch on a broom get back and forth across the Atlantic pre-contact unless there was communication and transmission of ideas across the Atlantic in ancient times? Uh, do you think that both sides of the Atlantic would come up with the idea of a, of a witch on a broom? That's such an obscure idea, and yet we have it on both sides. And so, so I sort of made this as a, as a focus of the story, this whole idea of, of witches and crones and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but it's one of those pieces of evidence that in and of itself doesn't prove anything, but when you show it to a jury or you show the picture to a reader, they say, wow, how did that happen unless there was some kind of communication across the Atlantic? And to me, the obvious answer to that is the communication came from the middle of the Atlantic and spread left, uh, east and west, left and right, after the cataclysmic event, and brought those things to both sides of the Atlantic. We talked briefly about the Masons, and uh, I, sh- I should say the Freemasons. Why do you think they are such a secret society when you talk to Masons, uh, Freemasons? I've got a friend of mine who's one of the highest members of the Scottish Rite in Canada, and he said there is no secret. That's the secret. There is no secret. <laughs> I think there are secrets, um, and I do speak to Freemasons a, a lot, mm-hmm. and I, I think... Um, and the, and the interesting tie-in to Atlantis, of course, is if you think about Freemasonry and the symbolism, they have they have these two pillars that mm-hmm. you enter the lodge, uh, Yaquin and Boaz, and the idea is that when you pass through these two pillars, on the other side, you find revelation and understanding and enlightenment. Okay, well, that's the same kind of thing that we talk about with Atlantis. You have the pillars of Hercules, the Straits of Gibraltar, mm-hmm. and you pass through them on your way out of Europe, out of the Mediterranean to get to Atlantis on the other side. And so there's a symbolism of what Freemasonry is talking about, where you, almost, again, almost like they're finding Atlantis. And, and Sir Francis Bacon, of course, wrote that book, The New Atlantis. You know, is, is, is the United States Freemasonry's New Atlantis. And so this whole idea of an ideal society or a utopia, which I really think is what the Freemasons are trying to build, is very reminiscent to Atlantis. And I think it's the type of thing that, that appeals to many of us, the idea of an ideal society where men are, are not just good, but they're great, and women, for that matter, too, that we're a, a better version of ourselves. Um, I think that's compelling, and it, 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 it's, it, it, it's something that we all go to bed at night thinking that we'd like to be a better version of ourselves. But how realistic is it? From what I've seen of 
the Freemasons, they do a good job of it. They walk they the walk. Yep. I mean, you know, everyone says they're trying to take over the world, blah, blah, blah. I don't believe that for a second. They're just trying one step at a time, one man at a time, one person at a time to be a better person. And I give them a ton of credit for that. Okay, but, you know, do you think that the utopian world could ever be accomplished? Oh, we're getting into the philosophy here at the end of our conversation. Um, I, I think the idea of utopia, no, but I think we can be a hell of a lot better than we are. And really, in the end, um, you know, maybe that's the secret of Freemasonry, uh, is that um, we just all need to be a little bit better. We just need, to, we just need to, to, to be a little bit better than we are, every generation a little bit better. And um, the world's such a mess right now, you know? And so I, I, I don't begrudge their idealism one, one bit. I think mm-hmm. what they're trying to do is, is, is good and noble, and we can all use a little bit of, of their humility and their idealism. What's your next book going to be about? So we talked quickly about the, the crone and the goddess. Yep. I am fascinated by the idea that in ancient times, going way back, that everybody worshipped not a god, but a goddess, the mother, mother nature, the mother, uh-huh. earth mother, and that somehow we have transitioned to the fact that almost everybody worships a male god now. How did that happen? Um, why did that happen? And are there remnants of goddess worship, including in Freemasonry, if you think about the Freemasons are the one who gave us the Statue of Liberty and a lot of these other sort of feminine statues and feminine symbolisms that exist in Freemasonry, is there hidden goddess worship in some of these institutions? And so that's what I'm exploring in my next book. What are your final thoughts for the Exxon Nation tonight? Uh, <laughs> to me, these there is so much that we don't know, and I have, a, I have so much fun diving down these rabbit holes of history and <laughs> ferreting around and in the dusty corners of history, and, and I just love researching and I love writing about it, and I think your listeners are the type of people who are equally curious. I would just say, you know, just keep pushing it. Just keep, keep that curiosity level high. I know some people laugh at me and laugh at other researchers and maybe laugh at some of your listeners for being interested in this stuff, but to me, the the, the, the unknown, the possibilities are just so compelling and fascinating. Uh, and, and it gets me up out of bed every morning. I, I love what I do, and I hope that uh, some of your listeners will, uh, will come along for the ride and enjoy it as much as I do. I, I'm sure they will. I, I truly believe they will. Um, I know you do, Rob, so thank you for your time. Oh, it's my, it. it's my great pleasure. Um, I've had the pleasure of having Frank Joseph on the show a number of times, and uh, I always enjoy my conversations with Frank. And Very well known. Yeah, he is. He's a great guy. Um, my gosh, my memory just went on me. Isn't that great? <laughs> Too many things on my plate. Um, I was going to ask you about the um, the Holy Grail. Where do you think the Holy Grail is? Or do you think it's just a legend? Uh, I think the Holy Grail is not an actual object as much as it is as a... Um, uh, uh, truth, uh, knowledge. So uh, I, I do think, um, you know, similar to what, what Dan Brown wrote about in the Da Vinci Code, I do think that it is this um, idea that the, 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 the quote-unquote truth of early Christianity, the teachings of, of the Gnostics, I, th- I think that's really what we're talking about there. Mm-hmm. As far as anyone actually finding it, I don't, I don't think it actually exists. I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm more in the, along the lines that it's some kind of metaphysical or uh, it really is knowledge, ancient knowledge is what we're looking at there. You know, I was just thinking about the, the, um, this, the, the, what you were saying about the, the feminine God. And I think that there's only one place you can look to see the, the suppression of a, a female goddess, and that, that's, that lies directly with the church, because look what they did with Mary Magdalene, for God's sake. Well, exactly. And yeah. so when we talk about the Holy Grail, you know, what is that hidden knowledge? Maybe that hidden knowledge is the idea, and this is what I'm going to explore in my new book, mm-hmm. the idea that the, the Godhead really should have balance. It should have male and female aspects to it. I agree. That we should not be patriarchal, we should not be matriarchal, that we need balance in society. We need male and female leaders, both, yep. not just one or the other. And that getting thrown out of balance, which is what the medieval church really did, being so male-dominant, that it sort of messes us up, and, and, and that maybe the pendulum's swinging back a little bit, and, and you know, that may be what society needs, is a little more balance. Um, and that's what I'm exploring in, 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 in the next book, so I'll, I'll let you know Super. in a few months when I'm done what I find. We'll have to get you back on when, you're, when your new book comes out. That'd be great, thank you. Listen, listen, what is the number one question that you get asked? When you go to see the, the university students and, and you lecture sure. at the Q&A part. The question part. I get all the time is, is how come we don't get, how, how come um, this is not taught? How come right. we're getting a, a watered-down version or incorrect version of history? And what I say to them all the time is, A, if you push it, they'll give you the truth, and B, it just takes a, a little bit of time to get the ocean line in return. There, you know, in 10 years that I've been doing this, I've, I've seen a huge evolution and the number of people who are willing to look at this critically, this whole idea of pre-Columbian exploration, and I think that 10 years from now it will be very accepted. So it just takes a little time. Um, we just all need to keep pushing at it, and, and, and it, it will change. But I always like to say it would be surprising to me if people did not come back and forth after the Vikings. Like, everyone knew where America was at that point. Why not come exactly. back and forth? There's great opportunity here, you know? Maybe not every day, maybe not every week, not every month, but at least every decade or so, someone would have come back and forth for something. And so if we just use our common sense, it's right there in front of us. David, I want to thank you ever so much for joining us. A great pleasure. Don't be a stranger. And Exonation, if you'd like to find out more about David, his books, or whatever, www.davidbrodybooks.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as we continue here in the X-Zone with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, this fall, the X-Zone TV show with yours truly will be hitting the TV screens right across the United States and Canada. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Whatever you do, do not go away. (laughs) 